You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please open with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We read beginning at verse 57. We'll read down to verse 68, Matthew 26 beginning at verse 57. This is the Word of God. Now those who had seized Jesus led Him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following Him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put Him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his garments and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, O Christ, who is the one who hit you? Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing tonight. Father in heaven, thank you for this evening, the time we have to worship you together. These blessed times of corporate worship that You have ordained to keep us walking in spiritual cleanliness. Lord, Your Word is like water. It washes over us and it washes away the dust that gets on our feet. And Lord, You strengthen us through the preaching of Your Word. You encourage us through it. You correct us through it. It's the means that You've ordained, Lord, to sustain Your good work in us all the way to the finish line. And We thank You for this. And Lord, we pray that tonight You would be at work in the preaching of Your Word. Lord, help me to declare the glories of Your Son in a way that would be good for Your church, edifying for Your people. Lord, strengthen us to listen tonight in a way that would represent worship. Remind us that our listening is worship. And so help us to listen in that kind of way. We are mindful always that there are people who will likely hear me, hear the preaching of Your Word on a Sunday night like this who don't know You. 
And so if it would please you, Lord, we pray that even tonight would be a night where they see the beauty and the glory, the majesty of your Son, and turn from their sins and trust in Jesus for life. We'll give you thanks for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord has been arrested in the garden, and now He will endure two trials. Each of the trials will have three phases, and all of this will occur within the span of just a few hours. Jesus will be on trial throughout the night. Our God not only tells us that our Lord was taken through the trials, He has saved for us, preserved for us the details, many of the details of these trials, so that we are able to see that these trials were, in fact, a mockery of justice. didn't represent justice in the least. And they were at the same time an attack on righteousness. This is something I've thought about this week. Why, Lord, have you given us the details of these trials? Why not just a short summary of the fact that Jesus was put through trials that were unjust in nature? But instead, what you've done is given us a lot of the details. Why? I think at least a part of the answer we can be certain of, and I would mention two things. As we look at the details of these trials, we see the innocence of God's Son. The innocence of Jesus is so clearly demonstrated, so clearly documented. As the facts are set before us, they demonstrate that though Jesus died the death of a criminal, He was no criminal. In fact, not only was He not a criminal, He was absolutely innocent. He was perfectly guiltless. He was without sin. That is an apologetic for the gospel. If Jesus is not sinless, then we have no Savior. And so one who dies on a cross, one who is condemned by Jewish authorities and by Roman authorities and then dies on a cross, what are we to think of Him as He is proclaimed as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world? These trials document the fact that though they attempted to railroad him as they attempted to organize false testimony against him, they still could find nothing wrong with him. And so this is an answer, not only for the confidence, the encouragement of us, God's people, it is an answer for unbelieving critics of Christianity. Look at his trials, listen to what took place, and you will see the sinlessness of the Son of God. But something else stands out at the same time, not only the innocence of Jesus, we see the wickedness of those who put Him on trial. The wickedness of those who wanted Him dead. And what is striking in the first trial is that this wickedness is on display in the lives of religious leaders. We're alerted to something, aren't we, as we behold this first trial. We're alerted to the fact that wickedness exists in the religious realm. It doesn't just exist in the secular realm, it exists in the religious realm. And we also get an insight into how religious wickedness responds to true righteousness. When you have men who have a form of godliness, but they are strangers to true godliness, what do they do with Jesus? What do men do who claim to be looking for the Messiah? What do they do when they meet with the Messiah? if they are unregenerate. 
In the same sort of way, we can consider tonight what it looks like when people who claim to be Christ's followers but are not regenerate meet with the true Jesus, meet with the biblical Jesus. What does religious wickedness do with true righteousness? This is what we see. We see religious wickedness with its hands on perfect righteousness. We see the kingdom of darkness, now it has its hands on the light of the world. What will they do? As Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, who were those lawless men? Not just the Romans, but Jewish men who claimed to be looking for the Messiah. Jewish men who claimed to be godly men. The leaders, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. There are two distinct phases to the trials of Jesus. Prior to His condemnation and crucifixion, you have the Jewish phase, then you have the Roman phase. As I said, the Jewish phase represents religious wickedness. The Roman phase represents civil wickedness. And as we examine tonight the, the first trial, the Jewish trial, I want to point out five things about religious wickedness when it meets with perfect righteousness. Five things that stand out about the wickedness of these religious leaders. But before we get there, before I talk about those five things, I do want to say something. The true church of Jesus Christ has always known and acknowledged that wickedness often dresses up in the robes of religion. Lost humanity wants to group all religion together. Lost people want to believe that everything that calls itself Christianity is Christianity. Therefore, we are all required to defend everything that is put forth in the name of Christ. Or even more general, that somehow we're in the position of defending everything that is religious in nature. As if we somehow are not aware that wickedness exists in the religious realm just like it exists in the secular realm. This is not true. This has never been true. The Bible itself makes clear this is not true. The Bible is absolutely clear from beginning to end that there is true religion and there is false religion. There is genuine godliness that still falls short. I mean, none of us is everything we want to be. None of us is everything that we one day will be. There is true godliness that falls short. But there's also ungodliness that is just a form of godliness. Empty with respect to genuine godliness. The Bible is clear that Satan often comes as an angel of light. The Bible is clear that false professors exist, have always existed. Judas is just the most heinous example of that, but he's not the only example of that. In the first century, Paul is warning churches about false Christs. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, you do know there are other Jesuses. There's the biblical Jesus, the true Jesus, the real and living, saving Jesus. Then there are other Jesuses. And Paul says if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, 
than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He says, you are too open. You are non-discerning. You don't distinguish the true Jesus from the Jesuses in name only. You don't distinguish the true gospel from the gospel in name only. You're not careful to distinguish which spirit are we meeting with as this message is being declared. And so we are not among those who would say that all religion is the same or all that calls itself Christianity is. We acknowledge, we know, there is great wickedness that exists in the religious realm. And that's what we see in our verses. So how is this wickedness on display Religious wickedness. How is it on display in this first trial of Jesus? First of all, point number one, religious wickedness is on display in the way the trial was conducted. In the way that the trial was conducted. Look at verse 57. Now those who had seized Jesus led Him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Let's go one verse further. Now the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Let's just stop there. How was this trial conducted? First of all, I want to say this is sort of a preliminary trial. This may not even be a trial in the true sense of the word. This represents the Jewish leaders putting their case together before they go to the Romans to make their case for the death penalty with respect to Jesus. So they already know they want him put to death into verse 59 so that they might put him to death. They've gathered together, getting this the story straight so that they might put him to death. So this is a preliminary trial. The trial before the trial, you might say. But as I already noted, even this trial has three phases. Matthew only, he, he begins with the second phase, but there was a phase that precedes what you read about in verses 57 and 58. Before Jesus was taken before Caiaphas, he was taken before Annas. John tells us about this. John chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, one of the things you'll notice in the Gospel accounts, there are times when both Annas and Caiaphas are referred to as the high priest. Luke chapter 3, verse 2 is one example. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Why are they both referred to as the high priest? Because Annas held the office in the legitimate way. It was a lifelong office. Caiaphas 
was just one of many who followed Annas who was handpicked by the Romans to hold the office. So Caiaphas was a, a religious appointee, but with political ambition. This is something the Romans did to help themselves. James Montgomery Boyce comments, he says, the first part of the Jewish trial was a preliminary hearing before Annas. This seems to be what John describes in his gospel, John 18, verses 19 through 24. Though the issue is somewhat confusing because John calls both Annas and Caiaphas the high priest. The reason he does so is because Annas was the true high priest appointed for life as high priests were, but the Romans had replaced him with Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, so that both held the title at the same time. So before they take Jesus to Caiaphas, who was recognized by the Romans as the high priest, they take him to Annas. Why would you do this? Well, because Annas still has authority with the Jewish people. He doesn't have authority as far as the Romans are concerned, but he has authority as far as the Jewish people are concerned. He is sort of the power behind the power. He is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He still exerts influence. And so as uh, a respect of his authority, they would have taken Jesus there first. There's likely a, a darker purpose also at work. That is, perhaps, before Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin, maybe Annas can get something from Jesus that will lead to his condemnation. Maybe as he questions Jesus, Jesus will say something that then can be used when he's taken before Caiaphas. John 18 verse 19 says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So he appears before Annas. Annas questions Jesus. The answers of Christ frustrate Annas. He allows Jesus to be physically abused. He's treated violently even though it is without a cause. As, as our Lord points out, if I've said something that's not true, tell me what it is. If what I've said is true, why are you hitting me? And then Annas sends him on to Caiaphas. This is then the second, what we meet with in verse 57, the second phase of this examination before the Jews. As Jesus arrives at the house of the high priest, this is the, the residence of the high priest, the Sanhedrin would be gathering. They've been notified that Jesus has been arrested. We have him. And so members of the council would be arriving. In all likelihood, not all of them are present, but there's enough for a quorum. There's enough there for the trial to begin. This would have been likely in the early morning hours of Friday after midnight. Kostenberger, Taylor, and Stewart comment, they say this, as the long, dark morning progresses, 
Word is quickly sent to the Jewish religious leadership, the chief priests, elders, and scribes, informing them of Jesus' capture and calling them to gather quickly at Caiaphas' house for a speedy trial. Caiaphas' residence was likely a mansion overlooking the temple complex in Jerusalem's upper city. The reference here to the whole council likely refers to a quorum, at least 23 members, and does not necessarily indicate that every single one of the Sanhedrin's members has gathered as of yet. Members likely continued arriving until the final verdict was declared shortly after sunrise. So phase one before Annas, phase two before Caiaphas in his residence, members of the Sanhedrin gathering throughout the early morning hours. The third phase takes place after sunrise. Look at chapter 27 for just a moment. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate the governor. That's interesting, isn't it? They, they all gather together. This is now the morning, and they're taking counsel together against Jesus to put Him to death. But wait a second. We read that before Caiaphas, there is the determination that Jesus is now worthy of death. Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. In verse 65, what do you think? Chapter 26, verse 66, they answered and said, He deserves death. So it's like a double announcement of the death verdict. Why is that? It might have been to avoid illegalities. There are numerous references in the Mishnah about how these sorts of trials were to be conducted. And one of the rules, one of the laws was it was not to be conducted at night. You didn't conduct a trial like this under the cover of darkness. Nor did you come to a death sentence in one day. You couldn't even have a death sentence without, I believe it was, at least two days. And we have to acknowledge, we don't know how many of those laws, because what you find in the Mishnah is later than this time period, we don't know how many of those laws were actually being observed in the time of Christ. But one thing for certain as you look at this scene is the conduct that is on display demonstrates wickedness because there's no impartiality. I mean, one of the things you want in any fair trial, in any legal trial, is what we're looking for is the truth. We're looking for the truth. But that's not on display here. So perhaps what is happening is they've come to their verdict in the, under the cover of darkness, but for this to be legitimate, now it needs to be declared in the light of day. And so when morning came and everyone was gathered, they go over the evidence again, and then the final determination is made to take Jesus to Pilate. They determine that He is worthy of death. So religious wickedness on display in the way that the trial was conducted. Second, Religious wickedness on display in the aim for the trial. Verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put Him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. 
the Spirit of God tells us that this was a verdict in search of evidence. The verdict is already in. The determination has already been made so that they might put him to death. They already want him dead. This is now a fishing expedition. Can we find some sort of testimony that will justify our decision to kill him? And if you want to think about the purity of their aim, the purity of their ambitions, verse 59 includes this thought. They kept trying to obtain false testimony. It didn't even matter if the testimony was legitimate. It didn't matter if it passed muster. It didn't matter if it rose above the level of a circus-type atmosphere. We just want something we can condemn him with. In fact, their wickedness is on display by the evidence that they had to reject. Verse 60 says they didn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. There was a lot of evidence they heard in those early morning hours they had to dismiss. Why? Not for lack of trying to get something, nor for lack of willing participants. Many false witnesses came forward. The problem was they couldn't get the witnesses to agree. This is clearly a kangaroo court. And they are being frustrated in their desire to make it look legitimate. A verdict looking for evidence, an outcome that's already been determined. We just want it to look legitimate, but we can't get it to look legitimate. They had to be so frustrated as they tried again and again to find some sort of charge to stick and they couldn't get it. So their wicked desires on display, even in the testimony they had to reject, they're frustrated by having to reject this testimony. They're seeking it. They can't find it. But then their wicked desires are on display by the evidence they accepted. Verse 60 says, but later on, those words, later on, you can see, can't you, in your mind's eye, this process goes on for a while. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, why does Matthew tell us two came forward? Why is that significant? How has the testimony up to this point, I mean, you have all these witnesses. How has it been insufficient? Why have they had to reject testimony? Because everybody knew, according to the law of God, what the standard for the evidence had to be. And that is you had to have two or more witnesses. You could not condemn a man for anything, especially not a death penalty case. You couldn't condemn a man on the testimony of one witness. You had to have two that agreed in their testimony. So throughout those early morning hours, you had witness after witness, but no one is agreeing in what they're saying. Finally, two come forward and they agree about something. What do they agree to? that Jesus has said something about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Numbers 35, verse 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity. 
or any sin which he's committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. But finally, you see, we have two who come forward. And they say that Jesus said something about destroying the temple and rebuilding it. And without a doubt, what the Jewish religious leaders are attempting, what they want that to mean is Jesus has threatened to desecrate the temple. Is there anything here worthy of death? Well, you know, he, he threatened to desecrate the temple. I like what D.A. Carson said. He said, interpreted with crass literalism, Jesus' words might be taken as a threat to desecrate the temple, one of the pillars of, of Judaism. Desecration of sacred places was almost universally regarded as a capital offense in the ancient world. And in this, Jews were no different from the pagan. But here's what I want to say about that. Even if you took Christ's statement, I'm going to read it here in just a moment. Even if you took His statement with wooden literalism, He didn't say that. Even if you don't understand, as we're going to read, that He was talking about the temple of His body, He didn't say that He would destroy the temple. It's not what He said. Listen to John chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. Destroy. It's a second person plural. You all destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Notice they don't even refer to him tearing it down or desecrating it, because that's not what he said. They're talking about his claim to be able to rebuild it. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days. But, John writes, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So even in trying to make their case, they have distorted his words. Even if you took him with wooden literalism, you can't make him say that. That's not what he said. Now, why was Jesus speaking this way in the first place? They were asking for a sign. And he's saying the sign that you've rejected your Messiah will be my resurrection. You will tear down this temple, that is the temple of his body, but in three days it will be raised. I will be raised from the dead. There's the sign and he's using this temple language because following the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, where do men and women meet with God? They don't meet with God at the temple in Jerusalem. They meet with God in His Son. This is where you meet with God. This is where you know God. This is where you worship God. Not in a physical temple in the land of Israel, but in Christ Himself. Jesus pointing to the temple as a type for Himself. But here's what's interesting. Even having distorted His words, I mean, this is the testimony they accept because there's two of them. Even having distorted His words, Mark tells us they still were not consistent with each other. Listen to Mark 14, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And Mark writes this, Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. So here they are. You want to see religious wickedness on display? How they conduct the trial in the first place, but then as you see them dealing with the evidence, the way they're having to reject evidence, it's not for lack of trying to frame him, and then the evidence that they accept doesn't even meet the standard. It involves a distortion of his words, and Mark tells us even that distortion did not agree in a way that should have been accepted. So in their conduct and in their aim, their wickedness is on display. And Christ's innocence is on display. They're trying, they're trying, but they just can't do it. There's nothing in Him that they can condemn. Third, religious wickedness on display in the turning point of the trial. What was the turning point of the trial? Look at verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Where do we see wickedness in those verses? Well, first of all, you see wickedness in the drama from the high priest. This is hardly an earth-shattering piece of evidence that he's just heard. But he acts like it's unbelievable. He says, do you not hear them? Do you not answer? Listen to what these men are testifying about you. When you remember that Mark says they didn't even agree with each other. The only way you can make this something highly important is to exaggerate it. You take something that you know is a distortion of someone's words. You take something that you know is a distortion of someone's motives and you exaggerate it and act like it is what it isn't because you so desperately want to destroy Him. We see that on display in wicked men in our own world, don't we? Just think about the political battles you witness in our world. How people will take words that they know they are twisting and distorting and infuse those words with something the person who said it never meant because they so hate them and want to get them out of the way. What makes this a billion times more heinous is the one to whom they were doing it. This is God in human flesh. This is the sinless one. This is the one in whom there is no guilt. Yet they're attempting to make him look guilty. So you see the drama of the high priest. He's exaggerating this situation. At the same, at the same time, you see the dignity of the Lord Jesus, don't you? 
Don't you hear them? Won't you answer them? Jesus, verse 63, the Bible says, kept silent. He doesn't answer. He refuses to dignify the distortion of truth. I love that. You know what? Sometimes the best answer you'll give to the distortion of truth is no answer. It doesn't deserve to be answered. Especially when the person who's distorting it knows he's distorting it. It doesn't deserve to be answered. Our Lord does this on multiple occasions. He gives wicked men responses that treat their wickedness with the disrespect that it deserves. Refuses to treat their wickedness with respect. It deserves no respect. And so His dignity is on display. The weakness of what has been presented, I think, is demonstrated in the next thing that happens because the high priest sort of abandons that line of argument. He doesn't even seize on that. I mean, if that's enough, you have two witnesses that supposedly agree, why do you need Jesus to confirm it? He knows it's a distortion. So he pivots to something else. He says, I put you under oath by the living God. Notice he does not say, did you say that about the temple? It's not what he says. I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Are you the Messiah? If what our Lord wanted was to simply escape a trial, He could have said nothing. But He answers this. He says, You yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What kind of an answer is this? You know, when you read that, you yourself have said it, it might sound like something less than an affirmation. Like you're saying it, but I'm not saying it. But if you hear it that way, you've misheard it. Not what it means. It is indeed an affirmation. What he's saying is that he's willing to affirm what has come out of Caiaphas's mouth, but what has come out of his mouth misses the mark. What you have said is true so far as you understand the truth. But Jesus, knowing that Caiaphas does not grasp what it means to be the Messiah, what it means to be the Son of God, Jesus takes it a step further. So He affirms, but with a kind of caution. Because Caiaphas hasn't gone far enough. He has said something true, but still inadequate. So that Jesus then expands on it. You yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter... You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. His expansion has to do both with the present and the future. Hereafter, after this moment we find ourselves in, after this cup that I am drinking, right? there's something epic forming taking place right here, right now in these events. 
but there's something beyond these events. You will see. And what does he do? He follows that with descriptions that clearly speak of the day of the Lord. When it's all finished, what you will witness is the exaltation and the glorification of the very one who's speaking to you now. You will see the authority of Christ. You will see the power of Christ. You will see the second coming of the very one who's on trial before you this very early morning. He does more than affirm Caiaphas' words. He fills those words up with meaning. Do you know what you just said? What you've said is true, but do you know what you've just said? I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And as a result, after this, here's what you're going to see one day. Leads to the fourth thing we see, religious wickedness on display in the verdict of the trial. And by the way, those words that Christ speaks, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. This has Old Testament reference. When you have time, just do some cross-referencing on that phrase, that sentence, and you'll see it in the Old Testament. So Christ is affirming who He is from the Scriptures. How does the high priest respond? Verse 65, Then the high priest tore his garments and said he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he deserves death. The trial is turned, but that's not the end of the display of wickedness. You see wickedness all over the verdict. You see wickedness on display in the feigned, fake, pretended grief of the high priest. What does it mean to tear your garments? It means that you have great pain at what you've just heard. Great grief that is holy in nature. You're the high priest, and now you've heard something that is blasphemous. And so with holy anger and grief, you rend your garments. You do know that is completely fake in his case. People who are truly sensitive to holiness, to the holiness of God, do not set up circus trials. People who are truly sensitive to the holiness of God do not try to entrap the accused. Even if you think he's guilty, you would not conduct a trial in a way that looks for false testimony. That's not a man sensitive to holiness. If you're sensitive to holiness, to the name of God and the honor of God, you don't distort words and motives. You don't try him under the cover of darkness. Everything about that picture of grief is drama. It is the dramatization. It is the acting out of something that doesn't really exist in his heart. It's fake. It's feigned grief. In fact, he's finally been given what he wants. He basically pounds the gavel. He declares the trial to be over. This is enough. No more witnesses needed. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Where there was no blasphemy. You understand the only way that what Jesus would have said could ever be construed as blasphemy is if it wasn't true. If he says he's the Messiah, but he's not. If he says he's the Son of God, but he's not. 
if he said that he's going to come one day and they're going to see him in power and authority, if it's not true, then perhaps you could make that blasphemy. But, but it is true. And here's what's amazing to me. Why aren't they, why haven't they held a trial to determine if what they've heard from Jesus is true? Why haven't they gathered together and looked at the evidence and asked, this is what he's been saying, and this is what he's been doing, and this is what we've seen in his life. Is it true? Not the first time they've confronted Jesus. This is what else is so ridiculous about what we see here. This is not the first time they asked Jesus that question. John 10, verse 24, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You hear the charge. You're not clear. You're obscure. You don't tell us who you really believe that you are. Tell us clearly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. You see, it's not a communication problem we're having here. It's a reception problem. The communication has been clear enough. The problem is you don't have ears to hear it because you're not one of mine. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Are you the Messiah? I am. Are you the Son of God? I am. That's in John 10. And here is the high priest asking him as if they've never heard it before. It is a farce. It is wickedness on display. So, the way the trial is conducted displays religious wickedness. The aim for the trial, which isn't truth, it's the condemnation of Jesus. That's wickedness on display. The turning point of the trial, an exaggeration of testimony, a distortion of Christ's words. Finally, a demand that the high priest thinks clinches it. And then in the verdict, and all of it, wickedness on display, but the innocence of Jesus. Clearly depicted, clearly cataloged every step of the way. Fifth, religious wickedness on display in the immediate aftermath of the trial. What do they do after pronouncing Him worthy of the death penalty? Verse 67, then they spat in His face and they beat Him with their fists. And others slapped Him and said, prophesy to us, O Christ, who is the one who hit you? What do you see taking place at the will with the permission of supposedly godly men? You see cruelty. You see violence. You see insults. You see mockery. You see hatred. What does false religion do when it has true righteousness in its hands? It proves to be cruel, violent, insulting, mocking, 
full of hatred. That's what it does. How does the kingdom of darkness treat the light of the world? With cruelty, violence, insults, mockery, hatred. So that wickedness is shown to be wickedness. In every step of this trial and righteousness continues to shine as Jesus is hated without a cause. Let me finish tonight with some applications and exhortations. First, I would remind us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We look at this behavior, we look at this wickedness, and we hate it, and we should hate it, especially as those now who have been rescued by Christ, delivered by Christ. It's, it's painful for us, it's hateful to us. But I would remind you that these men conducting this trial since the fall of Adam were cut from the same cloth as we were. In fact, as Jesus is hanging on the cross and being mocked there, we will hear Him say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Paul, the great apostle, the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen, was one who breathed out threats against the Lord's church. The fact is, everywhere the gospel is ever heard and rejected, the people who reject the gospel came to the same conclusion as the men did in this trial. They hear the gospel, they hear the good news that God will forgive sinners through the death of His Son, who is now alive, raised from the dead, that Jesus is the only Savior given for sinners like us. And men and women come to the conclusion that Jesus is not worthy of their life, which is to say He isn't really who He claimed to be. Jesus is on trial in this world every day, and sinners reject Him with hatred every day. Praise be to God that Jesus came into the world not to save righteous people because there aren't any. He came into the world to save sinners. And every single one of us, what the Lord did is took us from our state of blindness and deafness and stupidity and granted light where there was no light, repentance where there was no repentance, faith where there was no faith. He took us to Himself. He laid hold of us and rescued us from our sin, from ourselves, and from His wrath. God saves sinners. And Jesus came to the world to lay down His life for all those whom the Lord will save. Paid for all of our sins and purchased everything that belongs to our salvation. Blessed be His holy name. Amen? Which leads me to the second thought, and that is Christ came into the world to suffer. There is no salvation if Jesus doesn't embrace everything we see in His life, in His trials, in His crucifixion. We are not saved if He shrinks away from this. This was the struggle in His humanity, His very real human nature in that garden. This is why He's sweating great drops of blood. Not just the physical suffering, which was extreme, but serving as our sin substitute, serving as the one upon whom the Father would impute our iniquities for the purpose of paying for them in Christ's own body, and then crush His Son to save us. God the Father saving us. God the Son saving us. God the Holy Spirit at work saving us in and through the life, death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came to the world to die. He came to the world to suffer. As I said, He could have delivered Himself from a trial like this by just saying a few words, but He, he doesn't say what they want to hear. He doesn't say what could have released him. He says the truth 
gave the good confession every step of the way, including in front of Pilate. And this is why he goes to the cross. Christ came to the world to suffer for you. As he said when he instituted the Lord's Supper, this is my body which is for you. This is my blood which is for you. Jesus did this for us. Third, Christ is proven innocent even as he is condemned to die. The Lord preserves this for us to demonstrate the wickedness from which we must be saved, but to put on display the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the one who saves us. So that even as our ugly sin is so clear to see the beauty of holiness, and the Son of God is so clear to see. And this is what the church will be preaching for the rest of our existence. 1 Peter 2.19 For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. You see, He didn't just deliver us. He shows us now the way to live after we've been delivered. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What a great shepherd we have. What a great Savior we have. What a great example we have. How can we justify defending our sin? And how can we justify if we're suffering for righteousness to respond in a sinful way? The Lord says, look to Jesus. Look at your Lord. He was guiltless. He was sinless. And yet he didn't revile when reviled. He didn't respond in a way that was sinful. No, he, he showed you the way you're meant to walk now until the day you go home. And so I pray for you and I pray for me that we would learn from that and we would gain the strength to endure and that we would suffer in a way that is similar to our Savior's, that we would embrace the suffering for the glory of God, for the good of others. That with our Savior squarely before our mind's eye, we would be thankful that He came into the world to save people like us, sinners, and forgiven us of all our sins. What is He worthy of? Isn't He worthy of our obedience even in suffering? Isn't He worthy of our obedience even when we're mistreated? And so may the Lord grant us the strength we need 
to glorify our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died and was raised to save us for God. The people of God would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious look at our Lord. We see this first phase of His trials. We see the wickedness on display in religious garb. And we're reminded that even in the realm of public religion, there are people who don't know You. Even in the realm of professed Christianity, there are people who don't know You. Even in the realm of faithful churches, there are people who are professed to know You and we have believed their profession, but they don't know You. And yet, Lord, we're encouraged by the thought that Jesus came and died to save even religious sinners. Paul was one of those. Lord, would You have mercy upon those hearing my voice tonight? Would You grant light where there's darkness? Would You grant liberty where there's bondage? Would You grant repentance where there's been a hard heart? Would You grant faith to see Your Son, to embrace Him with the whole heart, to lose the life to gain life? Would You save? Would You encourage us, Your people, with the knowledge of the great salvation You have done in our case? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.